newish series where we're looking at some strange and interesting sometimes funny stories of scripture um we've looked at jacob wrestling with god and we looked at the witch of endor last week so steve where are we turning to today what story are we looking at we're going to make a leap into the new testament in this series now and we're going to take a look at a story from the gospels uh this is a story you can find in mark's gospel in sort of two parts in uh chapter 11 of mark's gospel uh it's a story about jesus and a fig tree um and so this story is set in um, the last week of Jesus' life, this is in what Christians sometimes call Holy Week, um, early enough in the week that uh, it is just on the heels of uh, what we call Palm Sunday, that sort of triumphal entry where Jesus has that upside down parade entering and riding on a donkey into the city. Um, he, after that story, after Jesus entered into the city, he goes and sees the temple, looks around, he sees everything. And then Mark says it was already late. So we went out of, back out to the suburbs, out to Bethany and waited there overnight. Presumably they've got a place to stay overnight outside of town. And the next day, so this would be Monday of Holy Week, uh, he, they're coming back into the city from Bethany, again, a a village on the outskirts, so picture it like the suburbs, Um, and he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree in the distance, it's got leaves on it, and it says he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it, when he came, he found nothing but leaves, and Mark says, because it wasn't the season for figs, Uh, and then Jesus curses the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it, then he goes into the city, into uh Jerusalem and has that famous episode of overturning the tables of the money lenders and the sacrificial animals in the temple uh we may have to unpack what's going on there but the final piece of the story is after that whole episode uh the next day they're walking back into the city and the fig tree that Jesus had cursed on that Monday morning has withered away to its roots, and Peter says, hey, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you curse is withered, and this leads Jesus to say, yeah, look, this is what faith will do for you. Have faith in God. Truly, if I I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will do it. Uh, As long as you believe in your heart and believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. Um, So that is a weird story. (laughs) Yep. It is. It, you know, I have written in the margins of my Bible here. Jesus is hangry. <laughs> yeah, like there, there are so many interesting layers of what's going on. Because on on the one level, clearly this is Jesus is hungry, and Mark, as the the gospel writer, among all four of the gospel writers in the New Testament, is probably like the most unabashed about just presenting a very human Jesus who takes naps in boats and who, uh, you know, can't do miracles when people don't believe in his hometown. Uh, when other gospel writers will, will seemingly kind of try and clean that kind of stuff up of, you know, uh, he wouldn't do any miracles. Mark's is like, he couldn't. Um, and here we get Mark saying, 
he was he was hungry and you know this this leads to this response about the fig tree on top of that mark has given us that unflattering detail it was clearly not the season for figs like you should know jesus it's not time um and that like there's this that just simple layer of jesus humanity and then there's the weirdness of what else has gone on with that temple scene in between so there's lots of layers going on Yeah, I've always kind of wondered, because this of how this is written, are we assuming that Jesus is still that kind of like hungry and angry when he walks into the temple? Like, presumably he hasn't actually eaten anything yet that day still? That's a good question. And I, I think that this is a really good question for making sense of this story is how much of this story is supposed to be driven by Jesus is hungry and is mad about not getting figs. And how much of this is an intentional sign act kind of a thing. Like the, 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 the thing that makes me think that the episode in the temple is not a random, just sort of Jesus flies off the handle, but an intentional act of almost like symbolic civil disobedience kind of thing is that the night before Jesus had gone and seen the temple knew what was going on and it seems like Jesus has in mind something is going to have to be done it's not going to be tonight because it won't cause enough of a stir I need to come back tomorrow um and this is a, a a a planned act on Jesus part kind of like the way the the prophets used to do their intentional actions in public places as a way of getting people's attention to bring a message about what God had to say to the people. But the 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 framing at the beginning and ending of the temple scene with this fig tree is is it's hard to figure out is this just a random side note or is Mark wanting us somehow that the fig tree story interprets what's going on in the temple? Um and it's difficult because sometimes Mark will do this, where he'll tell a story with a kind of book ending at the beginning and the ending, and you kind of can't help but think this is an intentional thing on Mark's part. What's the point of all this? But he doesn't give us helpful clues. He doesn't say, I'm doing this so that you'll all understand. He expects a lot of us interpretively, and, and that leaves us 2,000 years later scratching our heads going, I, this seems really important, Mark, but I don't know why. I think one of the things that, stands out for me that you said earlier, Steve, is that Mark paints the clearest picture of human Jesus. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I grew up in a very traditional, conservative Southern Baptist family when I was little, like that was my main religious influence. And Jesus was always painted in this very divine sinless picture you know like Jesus did no wrong and so when I come across stories like this where Jesus just curses a fig tree that's not in season it doesn't so much give me question about well was this a sin but just sort of you know yeah Jesus Jesus experienced hunger and experienced the emotions that often come when you're have that physical demand on your body of not feeding it when it needs to be fed. And, you know, this is, I think we've all experienced this moment, like, which, you know, it's like the Snicker commercial. <laughs> Here, eat this. You're not yourself when you're hungry. Um, you know, this this moment of Jesus not being himself because he is hungry, because he's a person with a physical body who 
need to feed his physical body, it, I don't know, it makes Jesus so much more relatable to me. Like that, that picture of sinless Jesus, of perfect Jesus, never felt relatable to me when I was a kid. Mm. And so this moment of Jesus just throwing a temper tantrum because it's not the season for figs and he really wanted to eat one because he's hungry. You know, we've all been there. Yeah. And so has Jesus. It's, it's interesting. Like on the one hand, there's something that's relatable about, you know, like you say, the very basic human thing about being hungry and there's no snacks around. And yet when I get hungry, I don't have the power to kill things or zap them out of anger. And like, I might kick something. I might be frustrated. I might say unpleasant words. Um, I might look in the desk drawer and say, hey, did I have any, you know, leftover granola bars? Oh, I don't. And just be mad. But I can't kill a fig tree or zap a tomato plant or do anything like that. So there's, there's something relatable. And yet at the same time, to me, it's this has had the opposite effect for me when I've read this story, because it feels like I don't have the ability to do that kind of stuff when I'm mad. Um, I have to live with a world that I can't bend to my will. And I guess the other thing that's difficult for me is this is the same Jesus and all four gospel writers tell us this, including Mark, that at other times when Jesus has the wish, multiplies loaves and fish to feed thousands of people so like it seems to me like if the problem were simply i'm hungry and there's no food mark has already presented us a jesus who on multiple occasions has pro- provided abundant amazing food in fact mark is the one who gives us not just the feeding of the five thousand but a chapter and a half later the feeding of the four thousand as a way of like hitting it home these are two separate stories of two different miracles and look at how jesus can provide abundant food for whenever he has the wish or the need or whenever it's called for but when it's his own hunger and it's a fig tree he, he withers the tree like it's 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 hard to interpret because it clearly is not like Jesus can't do that kind of thing if he wants to. And yet here, that's not the response. He doesn't miraculously touch the tree and, you know, make it bring forth figs. He says, may nobody ever eat figs from you again. What do you do with that, right? Do you think it's because it's just himself that is hungry, right? Like the feeding of the multitudes, it's not like he's trying to feed just himself. Right. But rather, he's feeding a whole big, giant group of people. Right, right, right. Is, like, there, there's that purpose of this miracle is to glorify God. Yeah. Whereas if he were to just feed himself, that's that's not a miracle. That's not glorifying God in any way. That's just satisfying his own hunger. I, I think that that's an important difference to notice. There's a piece of me, though, that wonders if almost and I'll just toss this out for us to kick around because feel free, this this may be heretical or nonsense or, or a, a, a bad rabbit trail here. But I almost wonder if, if it would help to read this the other way around and see the fig tree in light of what's going on at the temple. Um, and what I, what I mean to suggest by that is um, 
I wonder if, you know, you know sometimes like with, with any of us, when, when we get upset about something, whatever the little thing is that finally is the straw that breaks the camel's back, isn't really the thing that we're upset about. It's almost like that was the last straw. Or like if I'm upset and there aren't any snacks in my desk drawer and I, you know, throw a tantrum about that, it's probably because there's been five or six other things that are weighing on me. And this is just the point at which I lose it. Um, and so I kind of wonder if Jesus, having gone into the temple, having seen the way this place that is meant to be this connecting point between God and humanity and has basically become not just a, a center of commerce, uh, e- even if even beyond question about whether people are being cheated, this has become a business and like an institution for its own sake, rather than a place for what Jesus will call a, a house of prayer for all peoples. Um, and that he's upset with like that and feels like I'm giving up on this as an institution. Um, and I've, I've read a number of scholars, and I'm thinking in particular of N.T. Wright's take on what happens in the temple, that that action is meant to be symbolically destroying the temple. Um, and that he knows he can't physically knock the whole thing down, but it's the symbolic act almost like the Montgomery bus boycott or a sit-in or something where I'm going to shut this down for today as a way of saying, no, this, this is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. Jesus knows that in a day they can get all the mess cleaned up and start over again, but this is meant to, to speak sort of the way the prophets used to do things like that and to say, this is God's no against what this institution has become. And that the, the fig tree then is sort of meant to be a parallel of like, I wanted good fruit out of the temple. I wanted good fruit out of the people of Israel. I wanted good fruit out of my own people. And instead we've turned toward this sort of, you know, uh, religious institution as business partnering with the Roman empire to keep things manageable. And that's not what it was supposed to be. So I'm giving up on this being the way that people are going to relate to God. Um, and if that's the case, then, then the, the, what happens with the fig tree could almost be like, you know, I was hoping for good fruit and I got nothing from the temple and I was hoping for good fruit out of this tree and nope, it wasn't even providing either that almost there it's, it's meant to be a stand in almost for that. I, I I'll toss that out for however you want to run with that, but at least it seems a, a possible reading of what's going on. That sounds good and right to me, Steve, like, you know, Israel is not producing the fruit that God has called it to produce. And so when Jesus curses this tree because there's no fruit on it, it's symbol, you know, it's a symbol for Israel. And a fig tree throughout the Old Testament is a symbol for Israel. Um, so that, to me, that makes sense. The, the difficult thing there is there are times when gospel writers in particular will tell us when they're using that kind of symbolism and want us to catch their hints. And there are times when they don't. And it's hard to know if they're not saying, hey, this is symbolic. Um, when are we supposed to read into that? And again, Mark is one who's willing to say, like, there's this uh, little apocalypse moment in the Mark's gospel later in chapter 13, where um, uh, Jesus talks about this future abomination of desolation and mark the narrator stops and goes let the reader understand it's like his wink wink nudge nudge moment of hey i'm talking about something symbolic that you all who are reading will understand wink 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 um so mark again is perfectly capable of doing that if he wants to say this fig tree is meant to be a stand-in for israel or something like that and he doesn't do that. He, that that's why it makes it so frustrating i wish he would either all the time he's dropping a hint tell us hey i'm dropping a hint now 
or leave it vague all the time. And then we'll know we're supposed to make inferences because he's not going to, you know, spoon feed us. And he sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. That, that makes it hard for me as a reader. I, I think the frustrating thing for me is it says on the Palm Sunday, like the last thing he does while he's in Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. And so, so far, like your, your theory, Steve, of like the, the fig tree is representing Israel who's not producing fruit. Yes, because he sees the temple and then he goes to Bethany, he spends the night and then the next day he comes across the fig tree, curses it, goes to the temple, flips over tables, so, so far, everything I think is good. It could, that could work for symbolism. But then the next day, Jesus and his disciples see the withered fig tree and Jesus has a lesson about it. Right. And the lesson is not Israel isn't producing fruit. Right. Um, but rather that this is a lesson on belief. Right. And that if you have just enough faith you too can do miracles, Peter. You can make this mountain be thrown into the sea. Um, why you'd want to do that is beyond me. <laughs> if you just have faith and, um, you know, whatever you ask in prayer, uh, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That is what Jesus says is the lesson with the fig tree. Right. Which seems completely out of left field to me, but that's what Jesus says. Right, right, right. I, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because you're right. It's like, it. Th this almost feels to me like we've, we've got this, this um, welcome mat rug in the front of the church that if you pull it one way and pull out the wrinkles, it wrinkles on the other side. And if you pull out the wrinkles on the other side, it wrinkles back up in the first place. And we, we joke that there's a warp in the fabric of space and time in the entryway of our church because there's this wrinkle we can't get rid of. It's just a question of where things don't quite fit. And it feels like sometimes we get stories in the Bible that are like that, that like you can make two thirds of it make sense with one reading, but then there's this last third that, well, what about that? And then, okay, we'll shift it. We find a different reading, but then there's something else that feels like it's, there's, there's a wrinkle there. And it feels to me like that's part of what we got in this story, that there's so much going on. We can't help but draw connections. But if we pull connections on one side, it, it leaves us, well, wait a second, what about the end of the story? And the other way around here, if we say, all right, well, the whole thing is really about this having faith in God, then there, there we're left the, uh, there, there, there's, how, how come at other points, Jesus doesn't encourage his disciples to wield their faith power to curse their enemies that other like it's and he doesn't that's the other weird thing too is this is the only miracle in any of the canonical gospels where jesus does something that seems supernatural but is not life-giving but death dealing uh, and it's probably worth noting that there are non-canonical gospel stories in, in books that didn't make it into the new testament where jesus does things that are like um I guess, violent miracles. And the early church said, nope, this is, this is not a story we're going to consider authoritative. There's a, uh, I think it's the infancy gospel of Thomas where Jesus, uh, some, some kids are making fun of Jesus or a neighbor kid and he like curses the kid and the kid dies. Um, sort of like back like to Elijah and the, the bears back in the Old Testament. Um, and so it's worth, it's worth noting that there were stories floating around in the ancient world uh, that imagined Jesus doing that kind of thing, what I want to attribute to sort of like bad fan fiction. And 
the early church, when it came to deciding which of the stories that really give us a sense of who Jesus is, no cursing another child is not, that doesn't fit. And yet here's this story that did make it into the gospels and that did get held on to as this, this is part of the picture of who Jesus is. He wields this kind of power. Um, and there's this one time he uses it, but that's it. And I, I don't know what to do with that. You know what this moment reminds me of a little bit? What's that? It reminds me of sitting in class and somebody didn't fully do the homework, but they kind of understand the material. <laughs> and so they, they're like called upon to give an answer and they just kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, BS their way through an answer. And the answer is kind of right. <laughs> but we also know that they could, if they had just thought it through just a little bit more, it might they might have had a better answer. Yeah, yeah. Like, it- I, th- I think it's it's hard to in a in a um, a document like the Gospels, in particular like Mark, which the the best of of current scholarship suggests that might well have been the earliest of the four Gospels that we have in our New Testament that was written. It's it's hard to know as you know he he's kind of inventing a genre because it's not quite like a novel it's not quite like an ancient biography it's not quite like a it's 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 not like Aesop's fables um, we want to start making all sorts of connections and assumptions and and assuming that he wrote all these out like uh, a novelist today would plot out a novel you know I mean like when when we write novel when someone writes a novel today. They, you know, have a sense of where the whole story is going to go and how every episode in the novel builds toward or is useful or whatever. And and I'm not sure that Mark does that. I think he's got a bunch of stories that he's inherited from firsthand sources and has decided to put them together. And he's probably left out stories that we don't have. And other writers have more stories. It's, it's hard to know how much intentionality is going on with any story that we get and how much is just, this is the way it was told to me. I'm just reporting what I, what I was told, you know? It almost seems like there's something missing between, you know, Peter saying, look, Rabbi, there, there's this tree. It's dead now. You cursed it. And then Jesus response to them. You know, and we want to read it because it says Jesus responded to them like he responded to that comment from Peter. But it almost seems like this could be its own little paragraph just by itself, its own little teaching that may or may not have anything to do with the fig tree. Right, right. And making that even more complicated, it echoes what Jesus has elsewhere said in the Gospels about if you have a little bit of faith, you can move mountains. There's that whole faith like a mustard seed that comes earlier. And so, yeah, it's possible that that teaching of Jesus is one he would use a bunch of times. And so, I mean, like, that's an important thing to consider, too. Instead of treating this as this is the only time Jesus teaches on faith, it could be that, you know, Peter says this and it prompts Jesus to kind of look back and go like, what have I been telling you all along? Look, you know, know, God has this amazing power. So yeah, but it's almost like a glance saying this wasn't the really, really the point of this whole exercise. But if that's what impresses you, Peter, have you not been paying attention to things I've been saying, like for this whole gospel where I keep telling you, you know, believe or, you know, have faith and, you know, your faith has saved you, that kind of thing. It's hard to know what, again, what connections Mark wants us to draw and what things were supposed to go, oh yeah, he already talked about this before. Another question that I've always kind of had, uh, in particular about Jesus's response of just have faith or believe, is that supernatural faith powers 
that Jesus is describing here, is he describing that for the disciples or is that for all believers? Yeah. Like if I have enough faith, can I command a mountain to be thrown into the sea? Or is that something that was for some reason given to the disciples? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I, I'm going to guess, too, that over the last 2000 years of Christian history, there have certainly been different strands of Christian tradition that have taken that in different ways. I know there are some traditions that sort of have this. There were special authorities and powers granted to the first generation of the early church, and then it stopped after they died because the early church, I don't know, needed to get its footing or something like that. But all those things have stopped. Uh, like some will talk about spiritual gifts in that kind of a way. Um, and then there are others like, no, this power continues on and is available, but don't ever try and use it because you'll be disappointed. And like, it always kind of seems like there's that, but don't really try and use it. Um, and I got to be honest, there is that strand. I would say it's probably a, a smaller, quieter voice over the broad swath of Christian history, but is awfully popular that has gone, kind of gone hand in hand with the prosperity gospel notion of, you know, name it and claim it. You say that you want that car and God will send it to you. You know, you say you have faith that, the disease will be healed and it'll be healed. And I, I have to own, that's not the tradition from which I come. And I, ha I have to live with times that I've prayed for so-and-so to get better and they don't. And either I'm left with, well, somehow my prayer isn't magic, um, or maybe this teaching of Jesus, not a blank check. Um, but it, it sure is hard because I imagine all of us have lived through times where probably trying to lean on these words. Okay, Jesus says, I'm supposed to believe and I'm really, really praying earnestly and it's something good. I'm not praying for a mean, terrible, rotten thing. It's, you know, dear God, help my friend or help my grandma or whatever. And it, the thing that we wanted didn't happen and we're left then with, well, does that mean I didn't have enough faith? And I think sometimes in abusive situations, People have been spiritually abused with that kind of, ah, oh, well, the problem is you didn't believe hard enough. Um, and if all you had was this story, I'd, it'd be easy to see how you come to that conclusion. But Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, and I forget which one it is, that you will do things even greater than what I did or something. You know, that's yeah, my paragraph yeah. of it. And, and so I take that with, you know, with phrases like this and teachings like this and think, so what does that mean? And and I get where you're saying, Steve, because I've kind of have fallen at different points in my life into one of the all of those categories. You know, the spiritual gifts are no longer useful. They are useful, but there's limits to them. You know, um, it, so it, it's something that I know I have struggled with. I know friends who are in the in the more charismatic side of the faith have struggled with because you know I've got friends who have the gift of healing and. And they prayed and they fasted for folks and they weren't healed. And, yeah. you know, why? Yeah. Um, and there, there is no answer to it. But I, I think, Sarah, to go back to your question, I think it is for us. Um, but what exactly that means, I'm not sure. And I, I think, I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to live with no matter what our take is on this story our lived experience at some point is going to rub up against it. But if, if you treat this as, 
yes, this is given for all Christians still today as a blank check, pray, you're, you're going to run up just like you say, Erica, of times when the person did everything they were supposed to do and they prayed and didn't get the thing they wanted. And on the other hand, the, the more cynical among us um, will like, well, it just that, that's not how it works. Sometimes you're, you're left with having to explain a time when someone's prayer seemingly miraculously does bring about healing or the thing that they prayed for. And there's no other explanation other than to say God was in the midst of this and to say, thank God for the answered prayer. It, it's almost like you have to be willing to let God be important than your system, because a, a system at one point or another, there's going to be a wrinkle in the rug, and um, none, no one of our systems is going to perfectly explain why is it that sometimes a thing we want or ask for, pray for with faith is granted, and why not, why sometimes not, and, and if when your system breaks down, can we still trust in a God, even if our system has had to be revamped and changed and whatever? And I, I, to me, that's a reminder. It is awfully easy to make our theological systems into idols as well, um, mm-hmm. and that like lo- loving or or believing in God requires that God sometimes is not going to fit my system. And I think you hit on a key point there, Stephen. We can still hold on to our faith in God even when our systems seem to fail us, or our our ideas, our thoughts about God seem to fail us like and, and that's not easy right I, i've been down that road that is not easy right, right. Um, but i think when we come up against those t- times and we can come out on the other side and still have our faith intact it actually makes our faith stronger because we realize i can't put god in a box that god is not you know my magic genie where i rub a lamp or, or i put a coin into the vending machine say my prayers and he's going to grant everything that i want but he is going to still take care of me. Yeah, yeah. It, it almost makes me think too, and this is going to seem weird because these point in two different directions, about one, how I deal with relationships with people when somebody does something that seems out of character or against what I thought they had said. And at the same time, it also makes me think about how scientists, especially like when I think about like what uh, astrophysicists when they find some new finding that seems to run counter to what the standard model is. And in in both cases, instead of immediately rejecting all of your background assumptions or the sort of the, the, the past experience or relationship you've had, you say, okay, it's possible this data that doesn't make sense right now, maybe there's more I, I more information I don't have yet, but I'm not going to chuck the whole thing I, I believe or have just because one piece of data, I don't know how to fit it yet. So like, there are times when, you know, astronomers will discover something and make something, well, wait, if this, if this finding is true, it's going to mean that something traveled faster than the speed of light, and that's not allowed by our model. And some people are like, well, I guess we have to throw away our model. And others are like, wait a second, let's check the data. Maybe the data we found is correct data, but there's other stuff we don't quite know. Let's not throw away the entire standard model of physics because one telescope gave us one reading that we don't know what to do with. I think that's helpful because there's been a number of times when I'll read an article about some new scientific finding and the author will say, if this turns out to be true, it's going to raise a lot of questions. And then a month later, it'll be, okay, well, we got more data. Turns out that nothing broke the rules about space time. Nothing traveled faster than the speed of light. But here's what happened. And here's why we understand. So the data wasn't wrong. We didn't make it up. But here's this other piece of information. And I think too about like with with other people, there, there are times when 
um, someone who I care about deeply does something that at first just drives me crazy. And I, why would you do that? And my initial reaction is just be mad. They're making no sense. Why would you do that? And then later on, they can tell me, oh, well, you didn't know these five other pieces of the puzzle, but here's why, here's, here's what happened. And it turns out that the person didn't radically change their personality and all of a sudden stop thinking or be, you know, cruel or mean or mindless or thoughtless. I, they had more data or information. I didn't have a whole picture. And I guess if I'm willing to give people that I care about that benefit of the doubt, if at first they act or behave in ways that I can't understand how they're being consistent, but they really are, maybe I should grant God that kind of um, benefit of the doubt as well, because I'm willing to allow that there's a lot more pieces of the puzzle that God sees than I can't see, um, you know, compared with me and another person, I guess. I I don't know if those are helpful, but I I find myself in, in in this train of thought thinking along those lines. So speaking of other pieces of information, remind me, is this story show up in the other Gospels? I know it doesn't show up in John's Gospel, um, but it, as, as far as the, the other uh, synoptic Gospels, that's a good question. Um, you I get... think so. You get... I'm wondering if it does, it, would, it might give us some of that more information like you were talking about, Steve, but I'm not... I can't off the top of my head recall... Right. So yeah, and, it's, only, it's only Mark. Well, you get you get Matthew. Matthew has a cleansing of the fig tree in Matthew 21, 18 through 22. And it's collapsed into one episode. Um, so it's the same day. It's the day after the triumphal entry. It's, so it's the day after Palm Sunday. Um, and in verse 18 and following in Matthew chapter 20, when in the morning when he returned to the city, he was hungry. So again, hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. Then he said to it, may no fruit from cover, come from you ever again. And the fig tree withered at once. And the disciples saw it and were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only will be done to you as been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in faith, you will receive. And further complicating it, a little bit later in Holy Week, in Matthew 24, um, Jesus again riffs on the fig tree, and there uh, it's a symbol of the sort of the signs of um, the, the, the coming of, of the, the, the kingdom or the coming of the, the apocalypse or whatever in chapter 24, verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So when you see these things, know that he is near at the very gate. It's not a reference to the exact same fig tree, but for Matthew's readers, you're like, wait a second, he was just talking about a real fig tree. That connection there, I mean, in Matthew 24, it's clearly meant to be an object lesson, a parable, uh, a symbol. But earlier, there's an actual physical fig tree like the the one that Mark tells us about. So it's it's messier. And Matthew's collapsed it the way sometimes he does. Mark is this one who stands out in the Gospels, it seems, in doing that bookending thing. Where it'll be, he'll set up a story, a thing will happen in the middle, and then he'll close the, the first story. Like the, the woman, um, uh, Jairus' daughter is dying, and the woman touches Jesus' hem, and then Jesus goes back and helps Jairus' daughter. Or there's the blind man, and then Peter's confession, and then two blind men. Like there's a number of times where there's that kind of bookending kind of a thing in Mark. Um, but Matthew has just collapsed all that and the fig tree withers all at once. But that does not give us any new or different information from what, besides just taking out the temple portion and placing it elsewhere in his gospel, 
it's basically the same story. Right, right, right. And think any new information, so we're not <laughs> anything more helpful as to right. why why Jesus insists on cursing this fig tree, except for the fact that he was hangry. Right. <laughs> and as as Sarah pointed out earlier uh, about that Jesus turns this into a lesson about faith, Matthew has Jesus doing that same thing. Now, mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly possible, like many scholars think, that the, the gospel writer we call Matthew had a copy of Mark in front of him and in many places just used, you know, uh, entire excerpts from Mark and then would add and insert other stories. So it may not be that Matthew's got independent verification from a different source that this is what happened, but he's borrowing from Mark there too. But even at that, Matthew just echoes that, okay, the point of this whole episode was to teach you about faith rather than this was a commentary about the destruction of the temple or not bearing good fruit or something like that. And we'll say, at least in Matthew, we have Peter, uh, or at least the disciples asking a question, how did this happen? Right. Right, right. And then we get that whole faith thing. So at least it, for me, Matthew makes a little bit more sense and say, you know, I, I still don't understand why Jesus, <laughs> like we said earlier, rather than just making the fig tree produce fruit, like he could, uh, cause we know that's possible, you know, why he curses the fig tree that doesn't, it doesn't help on that end, yeah. but at least we get like, okay, why does this turn into a faith conversation? Oh, because yeah. of this question. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, I think that kind of reinforces that that Matthew probably had a copy of Mark and in a lot of ways, Matthew smooths that over, right? Like yep. the yeah. gospel of Matthew re- reads like a second draft in the yep. way that Mark reads like a first draft where yeah. it just needs to be cleaned up a little bit. Um, that's not to say that there isn't really good things that we can get from Mark, but in Mark, there tends to be those like really weird unanswered questions because yeah. Mark just didn't take the time to rewrite it, right? Yeah. Like this, this is Mark's gospel. It is what it is. He very much seems like he was writing it quickly to just get it out as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, there are definitely those mm-hmm. unanswered questions. And, and to be honest, I, I, this, this may seem weird to say, but there's something about me that is really grateful that our New Testament has preserved that rough version of things too. Um, Because I get skeptical when somebody gives me the too cleaned up version of a story and you're like, there's a lot more going on here. Um, Did did Matthew just yada, yada, yada over the, you know, the the messy part of this. Um, And to, to be able to say like Mark does, here's, here are a bunch of stories. Some of them have really rough edges. Some of them leave you with lots of questions. And yet I'm still convinced this Jesus is the one in whom God is present and saves the world through death and resurrection. Um, that, that says to me that like, this isn't invented out of whole cloth, that even if Matthew felt some editorial need to smooth over things the way editors do, um, Mark, Mark feels almost more like the, the, like they say, journalism is the first draft of history that like, he's like, okay, I got these firsthand accounts. I don't know what to do with them, but here they are, go. And if even in there, Jesus is this compelling figure who brings the reign of God, um, that tells me that that the gospel is more than just a, a PR statement, you know, that it's more than just, okay, we polished it and there's nothing controversial, nothing upsetting. Like, you no, know, if even with the raw and rough edges, he's still this compelling figure um, that you, you can't help but want to give your life to yeah, there's something to this, Jesus. So I, I, I'm, I'm all the more grateful sometimes when you hold Mark up against the other gospels and go, man, Mark is rough, but 
I'm grateful for that, maybe. Yeah. I mean, Mark's whole point was just to get the information out there. Yeah. You know, being the first gospel, like he's like, oh my gosh, this is so important. I need to get it out there. I don't care how it gets out there. Like, just get the information to the people. Right. And then we get Matthew and Luke who have that time, like you said, you know, second, third drafts of the book, yeah. you know, writing to different groups and um, bringing out different things. Um, you know, so like with you, Steve, I'm, I'm grateful that we do have that kind of rough first draft and be like, okay, you know what, I'm just going to hit the really important things yeah. and focus on them. And we'll let other people kind of, you know, pull out what needs to be pulled out later. Yeah. But right now, this needs to be said. That, that reminds me too, that like, especially in this age of instant news and, um, you know, the, the 24-7 news cycle, as well as news stories breaking on social media, like Twitter and things, um, that sometimes raw footage that comes out early in his event is happening is important to see, but later voices aren't wrong when they shape it. They're helping give context and you need both. Sometimes you need that, oh my goodness, I just saw the raw footage of what happened. And then you'll also need someone later to fill in the gaps like, okay, here's what led up to that. Here's why. Um, And I I can think in the last several years, how many times there's been a a big news story where here's the headline, here's the, you know, the 10 second video footage we all see. And later reporting sort of fills out, well, here's what happened before the camera went on, or here's what was going on in the longer clip. And you need that, but you also need the immediacy of here's the moment you can't forget. And instead of pitting one against another, I think there's something valuable that our New Testament has said, like, okay, here's the instant, you know, as it was happening, sort of a feel. And then also other writers kind of help. Don't don't misunderstand what's going on here. Let me shape this or let me help you understand the context, that kind of thing. That, that again, gives me more confidence rather than less in what we've got in the New Testament, honestly. Well, for a weird story that basically involves just telling a tree to die, there's been an awful lot of um, worms we've, we've gotten out of this can as well. Um, I, I can only imagine that there's more in store for us in future episodes as well. So we want to invite you to join uh, in our ongoing series here on weird Bible stories here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you next time. See you. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.